Welcome along to the Candy Pants Lifestyle Podcast. I'm Nick, and this week we speak to the man behind some of the biggest sporting events on the planet. Frank Smith is the CEO of Matchroom Boxing, and Matchroom put on events just like us at Candy Pants. The only small difference is some of the events they hold are at places like Madison Square Garden in New York City. They have a few million people watching on the telly, and some of the people there are trying to knock each other's heads off. But apart from that, yeah, it's really similar. Frank tells us how he went from selling raffle tickets to putting on a show for 90,000 people at a packed-out Wembley Stadium at the age of just 21. What it's like working alongside some of sport's biggest characters in Anthony Joshua and Eddie Hearn. And the small matter of how you build an arena from the sand up in the desert of Saudi Arabia just in time to hold one of the most anticipated world heavyweight boxing matches of all time. This is the fascinating journey of Frank Smith. So, Frank, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No worries. Any chance I get to be involved in something with candy pants, I'm not allowed too many nights out anymore, so it's, it's ideal for me. Go on then, I'll change my first question. So what's your first candy pants, or what is your candy pants memory? First camp, I was in, I think it was in Leeds at Oracle with Ray, and uh, I've got so many memories from there, but I was very drunk at every moment of them, so I can't really recall. They blur into one. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So uh, I remember we had some great nights out there. We used to do a lot of shows in Leeds, um, had some great nights with everyone there, and it was was a great place to go, and you've just gone from strength to strength from there, you seem to be taking over the world. Well, trying, but not as much as you, I don't think. <laughs> that's what we. That's what the challenge is. I keep texting Ray, I'm saying like every time you go somewhere, we just copy you, basically. Well, we're following you. We got to Vegas way after you. <laughs> so, out of interest, if you meet someone and they don't know you, they don't know boxing, they don't know matchroom, like, how would you explain what you do? I tend not to. Because uh, then you get a lot of people who ask you for tickets later down the line. If someone doesn't, if someone doesn't know what job I do, I tend to pretend I don't really work in it. I use I use the line that I work in KFC to a lot of people because uh, people aren't as interested in that. It's funny though, especially people who aren't in that industry. I've got an auntie who's a lot older, and she's obviously heard you. Like, Nick does this candy pants, which I mean to her is like a novel concept. Um, but she knows we do brunches and stuff. So I think she, I think her understanding is that we maybe run some kind of breakfast. I don't know if she's got an image of that I like making like fried eggs and stuff. But. Your brunch is very different to what she expects, I think. Um, so obviously you're the CEO now. How did you get started? Yeah, so look, I started with Matchroom. So Matchroom as a group, we promote uh, around 500 events a year across 12 different sports we do. Boxing, obviously, is my main focus. We've got the darts, which everyone loves, snooker, fishing, golf, bowling, everything you can imagine we're involved in. Um, so I started when I met Eddie when I was about 14 years old yeah. and basically pestered him for some work experience. And he, he in the end, he, he gave in. It's like I'd, I'd put advertising boards out on golf courses, I would make tea a hundred times a day. I would literally have the most boring jobs you could ever imagine. And that, that went on for quite a while. And then 
sort of work, work, work my way through all the different sports and fell into boxing, really, which is, uh, has got me where I am today. How did you start pestering him? Like, you see you pestered him, but did you know him before? No, I met him at a... Uh, my dad threw a party for his company, and, and I was selling raffle tickets for a charity. And I sold Eddie £20 worth of raffle tickets. Then someone said... He's the one with that new Bentley outside. And I said, the tight bastard only gave me 20 quid. Went back over to him, got 50 quid out of him. And then just, I don't think I left him alone for most of the night and said, I want to come and work for you. And he was like, yeah, leave me alone, mate. You know, you're about 12 years old. Um, and uh, in the end, I just, I got his email that night. And then I, like I said, I delivered teas, coffees, pizzas, anything, anything anyone wanted. I was there, started and yeah, never, never really looked back. I think I just wanted to go to work. And if I would have gone to work at Tesco, for example, yeah. I feel like I would have been the best shelf stacker you had. <laughs> and that was just my thing. I just wanted to go out and do something. Then fell into it, like I say, really fell into it more than anything. And I love it. You know, I love what I do now. I love being involved in the events and not just boxing, but everything we do. Because a lot of people probably don't know that, you know, Matchroom isn't just boxing, is it? No, no. So we Matchroom owns the the professional darts corporation, or you know, is a majority owner in that. So runs that. Same with World Snooker. You know, all different audiences. Snooker's got an older, older demographic, obviously, um, but but huge numbers, and there's been a huge sport in the UK. Uh, then you've got the other things we do, like pool, fishing, bowling. We do gymnastics, basketball, netball, um, and we're just always looking into new things that that interest us and. You know, I'm not, there's there's probably plenty more things to come along over the next few years as well. I still want to ask you about the darts and how that's kind of blown up. But is there a, there's a good story, isn't there, about you at a train station when you've just started at Matchroom? Yeah, this was, I was at, no, it was before I actually started. It was right. when I was going for my interview. So I got to, I was at Chelmsford train station. My mum had dropped me off and I was going for an interview with Eddie going for the one interview that I've been pestering him for. And I got there and I went to buy a ticket and I put my hand in my pocket and my wallet wasn't there. And I remember I was, I was standing there thinking, oh, you've, you've fucked this up. Like, I nearly started crying. Yeah. And I found, I found, I was going up to a few people and, you know, I was, I was all dressed up, ready for this interview, but still 16 years old. And I was like, excuse me, can I borrow 12 pounds, please? And this guy, they're looking at me like, no. And then eventually a guy, I stopped him and was like, please, please help me. I've got a job interview. I need £12. Like, give me your address. I'll send it back to you. And he gave it to me. And he never gave me his details right. to send it back. So I owe it all to, owe it all to that, that, that man, actually, that stranger. You need to find him, don't you? I know. It would be great. It would be. I just don't know where to start, to be honest. I don't even know what he looks like. <laughs> I think for a lot of people listening, it's probably important who we at least give some airtime to who Eddie is because we keep talking about him and probably haven't addressed him and if you don't know him you might be a bit who's Eddie um, so why don't you tell us who's Eddie he's the social media sensation the <laughs> no context turn guy uh, that, that's, that's so funny because people must know him just for that who don't know no, what uh, yeah they do they do you get so many people come up to him now and go you're the guy off Twitter and uh, he's like yeah, I'd like to be known for what I've actually done, but Eddie yeah, it works is, for years. But yeah, someone yeah, has set up yeah. an Instagram account. <laughs> but he's um, so Barry Hearn, who's his father, started Matchroom forty years ago. He's you know been in sport for a long time, 
uh, got he set up. You know, he's big in boxing to begin with, then snooker darts. He came out of boxing, and then Eddie's Eddie's his son, Eddie Hearn. He has sort of taken over boxing from there. You know, he's he's built a huge profile profile in the UK um, and and worldwide as well. And yeah, now as I say, he's better known for that social media account <laughs> on Twitter, he must which hate is quite that. funny. I think I think it, he laughs at it. To be honest, yeah. he's uh, he, he's he's very good at having a laugh, um, and that's what makes him, you know, what he is. I mean, what's Eddie like to work with? I mean, I see what a lot of people will know publicly. So, what is it like to work with him? Yeah, no, he's great. Like I said, I've where I've known him since such a young age. I have a bit of a different sort of relationship with him. You know, working for him when it, from sixteen. Grown up with him, so I can be quite open with him and honest about what I think, which is always hard when you're in a when you're in a job or a business. Sometimes it's not that easy to do that to people you work for. But he's a, he's a good guy, and we I, we always laugh as well because he he says in years to come, what we'll do is we'll just wheel him out and say, "Go on, Eddie, go and talk your talk," because he is the master salesman, and then it's left to the rest of us to deliver it. And that's what's always quite good. He's so good at what he does, and then we get on with the nuts and bolts of making it all happen. So what you're saying is, is that Eddie's the Michael Bublé of, of boxing. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's a good one. He <laughs> might like that as well. Michael Bublé hasn't done too bad, has he? Well, he just gets rolled out at Christmas, doesn't he? And Eddie just gets rolled out at the press conference. No, he's, he's obviously the public-facing uh, role of, of the business, and he takes that on. Um, you know, he works on a lot of the deals, works with a lot of the fighters. I tend to do a lot more work in the background. So once we say, once we sit down and we do a deal, I'll normally be there with Eddie, we'll do it, and then I'll take it from there. Was there a point for you where you kind of went from, you know, being the lad who made the tea and went, hold on, like, actually, I think I know what I'm doing now. And when I say something, people seem to think that I know what I'm doing as well. I think... There was times back in, like, when we did Frotch Groves at Wembley, for example, that was in 2013, and how old was I there? I, was, I would have been 21. And, you know, I sat in this room with everyone from Wembley Stadium, or, like, there'd be six, seven people, and they'd be there with this 21-year-old kid, and they'd look at me and they'd think, are you sure you can make these decisions? Like, do you need to go back and speak to anyone? And that, over time, obviously people judge a lot of people by age. And I think... Once you get to know someone and see, actually, they're quite, you know, they're quite good at what they do, it gets a lot easier for people. That was always the thing I faced when I was younger, is I'd go into, you know, I'd go into meetings and they'd look at me and think, who is this 12-year-old? Because I still look, I looked young as well, couldn't grow yeah. any facial hair. And, uh, yeah, they'd, they'd sort of look at me and think, who is this kid and does he know what he's doing? But over time, once you work with people and you sort of build up your confidence, I think people start to respect that, yeah, you do know what you're doing. And I've... I've been lucky that I've been chucked into a lot of things over over the years. So things I didn't have a clue how to do and what to do, they'd just be like, right, go and do that. And if you make a mistake, learn from it and don't do it again, basically. Obviously, we'll go on to boxing because we could sit and talk about it all day long. But I am fascinated by the darts thing. How did What would you put that darts, that explosion and its popularity down to? I think just ever. I think it suits the. You know, it's growing globally now, but in the UK, it suits our our personality, doesn't it? We love we love a night we love a night out to go out and have a have a good time with everyone. And you look at that audience and the night they're having. And it's just sensational. The sport has grown from strength to strength, 
And it's one, I would say it's one of the best nights out I think you could have. I take some people there, you know, you take a lot of people there from all over the world and they go, right, we're going to go to darts tonight. And some of them who don't really, you know, have yeah. them watch it, they go, what do you mean darts? darts? And they come out yeah. of it. Yeah, and they're like, that is the best night ever. I actually saw a clip of a Eddie showed me the other day of Tiger Woods. So there was an interview with Tiger Woods did right. a couple of days ago. And they went, what sports did you like to watch, Tiger? Or do you like to watch? He goes, funnily enough, you won't believe me. I love this. I love this darts. <laughs> Everyone's in there going crazy. It's amazing, you know. So it's it's interesting. I think the sport's going from strength to strength. You know, it's big in the UK, it's big in Germany, Australia, US is really growing, so it's great. That whole culture of people being there and in fancy dress and you know, it's wild. Where did that come from? Did you imp- did you guys impact that or was it just something that evolved over time? I'd love to say it was my idea, but I think it was before my time, unfortunately. Um, no, but I think it's something that the PDC have done a great job on to build this, you know, to build that atmosphere and build, you know, build it into a night out. I think that's something we always focus on as a business across all our sports, but just making it into a night out. You know, the people in that in that venue, you've got to give them the best night they can imagine. They're, they're paying, they're coming out, and uh, yeah, I think it's. It's been built over a period of time, the fancy dress, everything like that, the 180s, you know, everyone up, up dancing, and it's great. It's going from strength to strength. Obviously, we've spoken about the darts, but in a similar way, but probably to a bigger extent, boxing's had like a similar explosion into the mainstream, haven't it? Like, what do you think's led to that, where suddenly boxing is something that a lot of people, the general public, will follow rather than just being something that, you know, almost a niche sport? I think boxing recently has become like, it's a cool, sexy sport. Everyone wants to be involved in it. Everyone wants to be down, you know, the gyms doing their, like, sessions with their trainers. Everyone wants to be seen doing it. Um, And then everyone wants to be seen at the fight. It's always had that appeal. And, you know, it's interesting. Boxing, I think, is the the second most talked about sport on social media. But why um, do you think that is now? I just think there's so many stories. You know, it's, the, it's one of the only things that can happen once and you never see it. You know, big fights building up to those big nights where you might not see those two fighters fight again. You know, a lot of these other sports, it's reoccurring leagues where you see these things happen all the time. But when you can build up to these big nights with these, especially with big characters, it's brilliant. We sort of changed the boxing business back to where it needed to be. You know, we took boxing out of leisure centres, we took it back to big arenas, and, and we built it up. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's been an exciting journey, and we're going to continue to do that. In terms of, like, practically, how did you actually do that? You know, if you to think back to boxing, like, years ago, and it's kind of like, you know, it might have been a leisure centre where someone from the social club rocks up and he's, you know, he's just jeans, T-shirt, and a pair of trainers, to, you know, arena boxing where you've got Justin Bieber ringside and people are dressed up in suits and stuff what did you guys do to change that perception I think we made it into a night out I think the, like I said the focus has always been for us that you got in the past a lot of a lot of sports has been around focus just around live TV so just delivering for the live TV audience and I think we've tried to change that and bring make it a night out have the music pop and have it going off have you know, promos on the screen selling the stories of fighters, you know, and, and just bringing the people into it because there's nothing worse than walking into a venue and it's empty, there's no music and you're just 
It's just boring. Um, I'd love to say it was some elaborate plan, but our focus was just let's build this sport. And I don't know how we did it really. It was a lot of hard work, and we're going to, you know, we we haven't stopped. We now is the point of trying to improve and trying to grow the sport even further. How much of the kind of growth do you think is down to, you know, like someone like Anthony Joshua? Yeah, look, I think I think boxing has always been there as a huge sport. You look back to many years ago with the, you know, in the UK, you look back at the likes of uh, Nigel Benn, Barry McGuigan, Chris Eubank, etc. When there was, there's always been huge stories around boxing. But AJ, yeah, I would agree, it's been a huge part of the resurgence of British boxing in recent years because everyone loves to see a heavyweight, a six foot six heavyweight ripped to shreds. Olympic gold medal who's gone on to you know gone on to show that he deserves to be at the top of the sport you know world champion two time world champion now um, so yeah he's been a huge part of it but that's the thing isn't it I think if you went into you know a primary school now and said right who's your sporting icon a large chunk of them would say Anthony Joshua which you know like how many of them years ago might have said oh my sporting icon is Mike Tyson maybe yeah. they would but <laughs> but I think he, he's a role model because of the way he acts and you know people can relate to him and everyone loves him like young young young, uh, young boys young girls mums grandmas dads everyone loves him he, he appeals to everyone and I think that's been that's been a reason why he's as big as he is I know it's not something you've got to kind of deal with now but at some point I assume people in boxing and probably you more than anyone else will have to look and go, right, well, who is the next AJ? Yeah, look, we're always looking at who the next star, you know, our next star of tomorrow is. We've signed, we've got 110 fighters signed to sort of stable. You know, you have to get very lucky along the way as well to get it all right. And uh, AJ's been the perfect story. So we always, it's difficult to compare, you know, each fighter to the other because they don't come around that often, you know, start superstars of the sport. But, you know, there's a lot of fighters we're working with now that we see as can be uh, huge stars tomorrow. You've got the likes of, I think a good one is Devin Haney, who's 21 years old, already a world champion. Um, and he wants, like, everyone says, he's like the next he's like the next Mayweather. Um, and Mayweather's probably one of the biggest names we've had in recent time. What do you think's the key to promoting a fighter? I think, I think you know, in boxing, I think we're quite lucky in terms of they've all got stories you know and a lot of uh, boxers traditionally have come from hard upbringings hard times you know and they've got an easy story to tell and sometimes in the past that hasn't been told and that's a huge part of our job is, is telling people where they you know what they've come from how they've made it to where they are now and um you know some people it's, it's a lot diff- more difficult than others some people naturally got it some people have got that character that you need to become a superstar so I think it's just, like I say, about telling that story to people out there and uh, spreading it as, as far as you can. So, you know, if you've got the right character and you, and you do the right job, you can build a star. How much do you think that being a showman is important to, you know, being a successful boxer as part of their, their brand, I suppose? Yeah, like some, but I think some fighters it's great for. You know, some fighters need to be a showman in order to... You know, you look at some of the names out there that have... Like Adrian Broner, I think, is always a great one. You look at, like, the fights he's had and some of the losses he's had, but he's still around because he's a showman, because he entertains people. So I think that's a huge part, and some fighters need that persona and that, 
um, that to sell them. And others just use others will just use their skill. Um, others may be may be a great talker. Um, so you know every fight is different. But I do think a persona, you know, having that showman showman side of yourself is is, is big for it. So looking at your rule now, how much of like your rule is being a promoter versus someone who's organising an event? I think because Eddie, as I say, is the sort of soul, he's, he's the face of the business. He's the Michael um, Bublé. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to tell him that. You know, <laughs> um, he, he takes the, the, the majority of it, but where we're doing... 50 shows a year now obviously we have to split things a little bit differently you know you can't be at every press conference can't be at every weigh-in can't be you know do every interview out there so I've done a bit more recently obviously it, it clearly comes quite naturally to Eddie to go and stand and be that showman and do the whole press conference thing and the interviews is that something that you've had to learn or is it just something that maybe you've just thrown yourself in and thought well let's see how it goes no, I think it is. It's just I've thrown myself in and go, yeah, just give it a go. I think early days, you know, doing interviews, I used to get nervous just doing little interviews on like in front of a camera at a press conference. Or podcasts like it, this. No, I, I, I'm even nervous now. Um, but, I'm glad you are, Kasuma. <laughs> but I think like with press conferences and things like that, as you say, Eddie's had 10, 12 years of, of and, and he's, he's been brought up in that sort of bar- barriers always been a showman and has always done this kind of thing so I think for me it's one of those things you only learn as you do it so every press conference I go and do now I'm sort of I'm, I still get nervous I sit up there and I think beforehand I think I'm going to say all these things and I get up there and I forget all of it and I completely go to pot and I'm like everyone always winds me up Eddie will ring me after a press conference and go you're right up there shaking what's wrong with you like <laughs> <laughs> you're a bit all over the place but I always get compared to him and I would because I suppose I've worked with him I'm around him all the time he's the natural natural person to, for, to compare me to but it's only a learning process over time you get much more comfortable doing it it's hard that isn't it because it's a blessing in the sense you can learn from someone like him who's obviously a bit of a natural at doing it but also a curse in the sense that you're always inevitably going to get compared to him yeah, no, exactly. And I think also over because it's something you only improve on over time, you know, you have to have you and with the way social media is now, you can't nothing ever goes away. So if I do a bad interview or a bad press conference where I'm shaking and nervous, it's gonna be there forever. And I think that's always in the back of your mind, like, you you can't fuck this up, mate. Like, get this right, because it's gonna be it's gonna there's about ten cameras in here and everyone's gonna be able to see this for the rest of your life. Um, yeah, over over time, I'm sure that goes away, or I'm sure the pressures that you get go away because you start to realise actually, just run with it and and you'll get it. For anyone who obviously doesn't know the scale of these shows you you guys are putting on now, obviously you're talking about places like Wembley, the O2, the Millennium Stadium in Wales, like Madison Square Garden. What do you think is like the main thing you've learned? from doing those huge events at places like that? The key is with running these events, I find, is there's nothing that gives you better uh, knowledge for 
doing what we're doing than just repeatedly being in there and thrown into situations because you you've got like a split seconds to deal with things and it's that's been a huge learning process is to learn how to deal with all different things that come up during a night and and make decisions and um, I think we've built up from you know back in the day 1400 people at York Hall all the way up to as you say 90,000 people at Wembley uh, 20,000 people at the Staples Centre in LA, 20,000 people at MSG. So, you know, I've, I've had a lot of time to learn and that that's probably the best thing. I, I always find school and sort of courses don't give you the knowledge that you get from actually being on the ground. Looking back at those events you've done, the huge ones, there must be one occasion or one story you look at and go, I was really, my back was against the wall there. I was panicking. I'll be honest, there's been quite a few, and there's a few I'd love to say, but I don't think I can say until I retire. Right. Um, I, I think... What Give us your worst one. What, what's my worst one? Yeah. Oh, I've many, many outdoor shows that have been close to being cancelled for either wind, thunder, lightning, and some of the biggest shows you could ever ever imagine. Yeah. Um, for things like that, where you've built up all this over all this time, and it could all be over in a couple of minutes. Uh, many scares at events that you know you have to work through, but I think what's great, what I love about my job, and I'm sure you see it with yours as well, is that there's not many jobs where you get the satisfaction of working from day one of putting a plan together or signing a fight, all the way through to three, four months later where you walk out and there is 90,000 people there or 20,000 people there, and you think, you know what, we did this, and that's such a high and that's what I think keeps me going week in week out so we do as I say 50 shows a year it's non-stop but the high is walking out and getting to see what's been what you've created uh, I think Saudi when we did Saudi with Joshua and Ruiz the rematch there that was a great achievement I remember walking I remember going to Saudi for the first time in about August of last year and they showed me where we were going to do the fight and it was literally sand and I remember thinking what are we going to do here? And then when you when you get to that point, you know, beginning of December, and you're walking around thinking, look at bloody hell, look what's been done here, look what look what's been created. So, so many so many things I'm thankful for there that I've had the opportunity to be involved in. This one's probably more of like a question from me, to be honest, than a general question of this podcast. But it's something that I've had to deal with and learn, like. I started at similar time. I started at 18, running events kind of similar to yourself. And especially when I moved to Dubai and we started doing bigger stuff, dealing with that stress of the build-up and, you know, when my anxiety used to be so bad and I, I was just on edge the whole time. Have you had to learn how to get better at that and how to, you know, deal with it day to day? So I, I was the same with you. I used to worry about everything. I used to get nervous about everything. And then over time, I think, yeah, you just learn... Don't worry so much because you'll get there. One way or the other, you'll get there. It may not be easy, but we this will happen. So I think, yeah, I'm, I've been through all of that as well. Is there anything that, looking back now, you wish you knew going into those huge shows at Wembley or the O2 or Saudi? I wish I knew, like what I just said to you there about not worrying because it will happen. I wish I knew that earlier on in my career. It probably took me five, six years of a lot of concern and worry about things that I wish I would have known for the shows, but for the period before that. So talking about like some of those huge events, 
you think you're talking about like Joshua Klitschko at Wembley, like whether it be like Joshua Uriz in Saudi, all the events you've done. What does a, a huge fight night actually look like for you? I think at that point, once we get to a fight night, a lot of the work's done. And then it's just really like firefighting any small issues. You know, anything that comes up, does is someone, is there a problem in the crowd? Is there a security issue? Is there something, you know, we're doing an outdoor show. Is there something wrong with the weather? You know, all these things that you don't really think about. But the night for me goes like with a click of a finger. And you've worked for months and months and months for this six, seven to build up to this six, seven hour period. And it's over, basically. And, yeah. you know, we dealt with so many problems over the years that it just all because there's never any surprises, I don't think, anymore. It's just take it in stride, right, what's wrong now? Um, and that's just the the thing of I think of being working in events, and I'm sure you have it. Everything you do, you can put all the plans in the world in place, but when you get down to it, things are going to change, and you're going to have to you're going to have to work with it. Do you ever watch the fights, or do you get a chance to enjoy it? Are you so far into the operation of running that huge event that it's just something that happens in the background? I sit down and what I do sit down and watch fights, but I do find that a lot of the time I'm sort of looking through them because I've either got an earpiece in or I've got, you know, we, we've got a great team of people now, as I say, like 35 odd people that run all our shows and, you know, make make them happen. Um, so, you know, I've got all the trust in the team we've got in place, but I don't think you can ever really relax until the point of it's over. So, although I might sit there and my eyes might be on it, I don't think I'm always concentrating on it. The, the lights are on, but no one's home. That's yeah. like me. Yeah, events. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People go to me, you can be so rude at events because sort of it's quite like, yes, no, clear cut answers, yeah. you know, just, you know, and that's, I'm sure, again, same with you. Because um, you want it to be like a conveyor point. belt of problems, just like deal yeah. with it, move yeah. it on, bang, done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I haven't got time to have a chat about rubbish. One thing I wanted to ask you was, Obviously, it's probably one of the places where boxing, in some elements, especially what you do, is very similar to, in in a sense, what we do in the fact that, you know, you're dealing with all different kinds of people, especially in boxing, I think it's fair to say, that you are dealing with some kind of, in the past it's been a bit of a murky world or whatever, and you're dealing with some quite serious people. Have you ever been a bit intimidated where you've gone, oh, I know who this is and I don't know how to handle this? Uh, I th- do you know what I don't really I think because um, I'm not I'm not like a ang- overly angry person so I'm quite calm with situations I'm quite good at dealing with situations I don't really let anything affect me I think a lot of people sometimes in business let their personal feelings get in the middle of things and you know I, I think I've always had quite a good relationship with a lot of people so it makes it a bit easier but you know, I don't. We've had tough moments at shows where there's a, where there's trouble between two groups of people, and you just have to deal with it. Um, but I think again, it's just part of that. You can't learn that from a textbook. You only learn it yeah. from being involved in it and seeing it and working out how to work around it. One thing that I am intrigued at, because again, it's a little bit similar to elements that we do, is that obviously you get the whole thing of wherever you are in the world and whatever level it is at, is that somebody wants to be in VIP who maybe doesn't need to be there (laughs) or whatever the story is. But you're dealing with that on a different level where you've got like A-list people wanting to be ringside, influential people wanting to sit ringside and I assume serious people who for whatever reason need to be there. How do you deal with that? How do you keep people happy? 
every yeah everyone wants to be in that front row seat, bang in the middle. To be honest, um, but I, do you know I, I've got one story I've got about that is I once gave someone some tickets, and I walked into the box office, and the guy I gave the ticket was like a friend of a friend had asked for some tickets, and he didn't know who I was, and I'd walked in behind a couple of people who worked for us who were there, and they said uh, tickets in this name, whatever the name was. They've given them the tickets, and the guy's opened the envelope. He's gone, these aren't ringside. And I, I knew you know, I knew the name, and I knew I'd sorted them out. So I went, just pass them back through, mate. And he put them back through, and I ripped them up. And I said, there's a box office over there. Go and buy them. <laughs> because, because I don't think you can ever – you can't do enough for people, can you? You can't ever please people enough. And, uh, yeah, it's always difficult. There's always a lot of squabbles between people who don't want to be in the uh, upper tier, want to be in the front row. But you got to, they've got to bear in mind that you've got to sell tickets as well to make it worthwhile. And also, I feel you can help people a million times. And the one time you say no, they're like, oh, oh, yeah. why, why, why are you not doing that? It's like, well, I can't, I'm really sorry, can't do it on this one. Oh, oh, right. And then, you know. And it's gone, on you now. Suddenly you're the yeah, bad guy. Yeah, exactly. And you've gone from good to evil within a minute. Um, you've changed. Seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you are. You. It's all gone to your head. How was the experience, obviously you've gone to America and you've taken uh, Anthony Joshua there, how was the experience of doing events in America different to obviously doing things here? Yeah, so we we promote 16 events a year in America. We've got an office at One World Trade in New York, um, a big team out there that I oversee. And yeah, I think the big change in in the US is that every state is like a new country. Yeah. The way you do things in every state is completely different. The way you sell a show, the way you market it, um, and everything, every state has its different challenges. Whereas in the UK, you know, you can say, I, I know what the people of Manchester like. I know what the people of live. I'm not from there, but it's quite easy, isn't it, to yeah. know the surrounding areas. And, and it's also tough because there's so much competition over there. You know, they've got so much sport, so many events going on. So you've got to fight for the limelight. And, uh, yeah, that, that's been the tougher side. Obviously, you can't really ask about America without asking about, you know, the Joshua Ruiz fight in New York. And, listen, like, I am no expert in boxing in any way, shape or form. Um, I'm not even one of those guys who, on the night of a big fight, suddenly happens to become an expert. Like, everybody knows that person who is watching one and suddenly you'd think they were former heavyweight champion of the world. Like, I couldn't probably fight my way out of a paper bag, so I say nothing. But I obviously looked at that and it was like, hold on, this is like David versus Goliath? Who is this giant versus this lad? Poor lad, doesn't look like he's seen the inside of a gym for years. But obviously, quickly, things changed. Somebody perhaps hadn't read the script, and we all know what happened from there. What was that night in New York like for you? Yeah, it was a mad night, because like you say, you just don't expect it, and he really ripped up the whole script. There was so much AJ had ahead of him at the time. But in a funny way, it's quite crazy, because a couple of days, you know, you have those days after where you're thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe he's lost. But then it's become the biggest story in the sport. And it's then been part of this comeback story, which then has made him even bigger than he was. Um, so, you know, New York was a crazy experience. It was a it was a great night just being there, the atmosphere. You know, it felt like one of those old school nights. Probably we had 10,000, 12,000 Brits over there that had travelled. The way in the day before was, was just amazing. And it was a, 
it was a big night. It was a big night for us. It was a big night for AJ. And, you know, it didn't go his way, but it's all part of the story that to, to tell. And it built the biggest, biggest fight that we saw in 2020. What was it like for you personally? I know that you were, had probably been massively part of AJ's journey all the way through. That I've heard stories that you took him to medicals and stuff in the past. So what was that like for you when not only was it your event, but I assume like it was your mate as well? Like, Yeah, yeah I think that's because, as you say, I've grown quite close with him and a lot of our fighters, you know, from from like the from the beginning, you know, from turning pro all the way through. So yeah, to see them lose, you never want to see any of them lose. I think the only thing I can say from our standpoint is that where we are putting on a show literally every week, unfortunately, you start to realise that the fighters aren't, you know, they're not unbeatable. For us, it's sort of like right, let's get on to the next week and let's build them back up again, because our job is then to to continue the story and continue build we've got a job then still to deliver for the fighter so we can't really rest on it for too long following on from that that there was the then there was the rematch and that happened in saudi there was a lot of talk about a fight being in the middle east and you go in there rather than somewhere else how did the whole saudi thing come about yeah well, obviously the saudis have invested heavily in sport you know they they want to build all sports over there um, and it was just, it was a it was a good opportunity. They wanted this fight. They knew it was the biggest fight out there. And it, and it was, it made sense for us to take the fight there. And I think it ended up being a great night. You know, it was a great show. What they did out there and what they created was sensational um, and will be remembered for a long time. And, and uh, it was all part and parcel of the story of that fight. And I think of what probably a lot of people don't realise is the fact they did essentially build, you know, the equivalent of a, or two or whatever in the middle of the desert how much were you involved in that process of of that being built from well the sand up yeah very you know as i say back in august went there they took me to to the piece of sand where it was going to yeah. be um and you know it was all part of an amazing area that they built for a number of sports they had the they had formula e there then they had the tennis the week after us so you know the work that, that went into it was amazing but very, very involved. We had, I probably spent, I had about eight trips out to Saudi. We had a number, numerous meetings there. Um, and it was huge teams of people. I mean, we'd sit in a room and there would literally be 50 people in there. And, you know, everyone's trying to do their, their bit and everyone's trying to um, get across what they need. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a huge challenge and probably one of the greatest challenges I've had because, you know, it's no easy feat to go out there and do that, and they they did a sensational job, uh, I'd say. And all the teams involved, it was it was thousands and thousands of people to get, to make it happen. I know that, like from our own experience, like we do quite a lot of events in Dubai, and, but the Middle East, it's very different where you go. So we did we've, we do things in Abu Dhabi, we do things in Doha, things in Oman, and every area is slightly different. But Saudi is at a whole different end of the spectrum. For people who don't know, it's it's so much less westernised and culturally it is so different. To it's, it's culturally different to Dubai, never mind to, to England or America. So how did you find that? Obviously, there was no alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of what they are trying to make change over there. And, you know, sport's a huge part of that. Um, so, and you... 
when you speak to the, the locals there and the people we work with, to see what they've done in just a short space of time is quite amazing and it is, you know, it is constantly changing. Um, but yeah, I think we had to learn how to deal, you know, with different cultures and how to, how to work through things. And, you know, everywhere is different. We can talk to people differently in the UK than we can over there. And I think that was a big learning curve as well. You know, we just had to, in the UK, for example, if you want something done, I find it really works if you shout yeah. and you get it done. And I think over there, you just, it's much calmer and it's a much yeah. nicer approach. And you just got to work together to get it done. And I quite—it's like almost that. the opposite. I, well, I'm, I yeah. can't speak from Saudi, but I know in the Middle East, especially with Emiratis or locals in Dubai, there's very much a the more they like you, the more it'll happen. Yeah, and I, I quite like that. You know, I always find that the more you do for people, or the more you try and help people and don't stand in their way, the more they will help you. Um, so I, I really enjoyed working over there, and I, I found it quite fun. It's, as I say, it's interesting to learn how to work with different cultures. So what's the plan with somewhere like Saudi now, do you think, moving forward? Yeah, as I say, look, they're, they're heavily um, investing in sports at all levels. Um, they want to you know, they want to bring, I think they've got something like, there's a stat around 70% of the population of Saudi are under 27, I believe, something like that, um, which is quite insane. And they want, they want to give... Um, people opportunities to take up sport and you know build all sports from all levels. So I think there's definitely uh, many more shows that will go there in the future, and it's a great place to work. And it's um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, what's the goal for you personally now? I mean, a lot of people from the outside might look at it and go, "Well, you're CEO of arguably the biggest boxing company around. Where else can you go?" Uh, I don't know. I'll hopefully retire by thirty. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be ideal. Um, no, I think maybe you can me, be a bag and buble one day. Yeah, I hope so. Hope so. I, I'm not as interested. Apparently, everyone says I'm a bit boring, but um, I think for me, I just want to keep keep building and keep growing and keep doing this. You know, if there's other sports we get into, or we look, you know, we look into music possibly, then that would be interesting as well. But anything to, I love working, so I love just having a focus. And maybe that will carry me through to about 40 years old and then I'll retire in Dubai with you. <laughs> I'm quite boring as well. You don't want to retire with me. I'll just be at Candy Pants every week. You can go and do my job if you want it. <laughs> yeah, perfect. We'll do a swap. We'll do a swap. A final question, and we try to ask this to, to everyone really and get different answers, but if you could make a phone call to kind of yourself in the past and ring the lad who's just got that that train for the interview with Eddie. What advice would you give him now, based on what you know? Worry less. I was always quite a worrier about everything. And I think just, you know, things always get... And this is not just work, this is personal life as well. Is you know, everyone's got things going on in their life and you just got to... I think you just got to be a good person, worry a bit less and work hard. That, that's all I'd say to myself. Um, and that's what I feel has worked for me, just being a good person, having good morals, and uh, yeah, worry a bit less about things because things always get done and things are going to happen. If bad things happen, bad things happen, but you just got to got to get through it. Well, it seems to have worked for you. You seem to have done pretty well for someone who, well, started selling <laughs> raffle tickets. <laughs> so honestly, Frank, thank you so much. I know how busy you'll be, so I really do appreciate you coming on. No problem at all, and good to talk, and good luck once everything's back to normal. So yeah, I've got absolutely no idea how I'll explain calling him the Michael Bublé of boxing if I ever run into Eddie Hearn. 
But what an incredible story so far it's been for Frank Smith. And something tells us there's a lot more to come soon too. As always, a little reminder to please click subscribe to the podcast. It's a huge help to us. And thank you all very much for listening. We'll see you all very soon.